0: Welcome to Motherhood Feels, Hindsight is 2020. I'm Dr. Jill Garrett, a licensed psychologist who specializes in maternal mental health and host of Motherhood Feels, Hindsight is 2020. Stay tuned for an enthralling episode with seasoned mom, Serene Leeds. In addition to the role of mom, Serene is a veteran journalist who has worked at Rolling Stone and the Wall Street Journal to name just a couple of her career credits. You can still check out her entertainment pieces when she recaps hit shows like Billions for Vulture, but in more recent years, Serene's writing has focused on health, wellness, and parenting. In fact, Serene and I connected when she reached out to talk maternal mental health for a recent article she published. Check out the show notes for links to some of her work. Serene also hosts a podcast, Emotional Abuse is Real, where she recounts her own experiences with emotional abuse and and interviews others who have endured or have experience in supporting those who have endured emotional abuse. Serene's website is sereneleadsrights.com, S A R E N E L E E D S W R I T E S. Her Instagram and threads handle is at Serene Leads Rights, and you can find her on Blue Sky at sereneleads.bsky.social. Listen in next as Serene details a Taylor Swift encounter, talks through her go to coping strategy of binging madmen, and shares lessons learned as a seasoned mom. Check her out next. Hey guys, it's me, Jill. Before we start, Help Motherhood Feels grow by subscribing to the podcast. Leaving five-star reviews can't hurt either. And if you're interested in supporting more moms and families by bringing Motherhood Feels to your workplace, you can connect with me at motherhoodfeels at gmail.com to learn more. You can follow me on Instagram at motherhoodfeels, all one word, and head over to motherhoodfeels.com to check out my self-paced online course, Motherhood Feels Before and Even After Baby Bootcamp that walks through evidence-based strategies for healthy coping with all your motherhood feels. Thanks for listening.
1: Hi, Serene. Thanks for being here. Hi, Jill. Thank you so much for
0: having me. I am glad we're having a chance to talk, and I am excited to hear a little bit about you. So tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay, so my name is Serene Leeds, and I am a journalist by profession. I've been a journalist for roughly 20 years. Um, I've worked at Rolling Stone, I've worked at uh, the Wall Street Journal. But ever since becoming a mom, which I did about seven years ago, I've mainly been freelancing, um, which allows the flexibility that I need. So mainly my journalism career has actually been in the entertainment industry. I working at Rolling Stone, uh it was mainly a music uh magazine. So in order to create my little space I started focusing on TV. So I still cover TV here and there of uh, and if if any of your listeners are fans of the TV show Billions, its uh, its seventh season is premiering August 13th, and I will be recapping that show uh, for Vulture, so check it out. Um, so in recent years, I've been transitioning over to writing about health, wellness, parenting, and uh, other lifestyle content, and I recently got my master's degree in professional writing from NYU you, because I've been uh, slowly transitioning into building a writing business that helps uh, small business owners punch up their their business copy, whether it's website, emails, newsletters, social media, sales copy. And I am also uh, the host of my own podcast called Emotional Abuse is Real. Um, I'm very open about this. I was emotionally abused by my boss at Rolling Stone. So I have launched a podcast. Uh, I launched it back in March of 2023. And I tell my story and I tell other people's stories because I still really find that emotional and narcissistic abuse is a relatively taboo subject, uh, mainly because a lot of people don't understand it. Um, So that's been incredible. I've been hearing from people who have been listening and telling me how much uh, the podcast has helped them. And uh, it's really an incredible feeling to get these stories out there. And most importantly, I am a mom. I am a mom to an almost seven-year-old daughter. She has ADHD, so that's been quite a challenge for me and for her, and it's been quite a learning curve for uh, myself and my husband, and we live in, if anybody was curious, we live in Westchester County, New York, which is uh, the suburbs just outside of New York City.
0: Well, thanks for the recap, and what... (laughs) fascinating uh, experiences that you've had and also some really cool opportunities that sound like are, that are in the future for you. Tell me about the Billions recap, because that sounds real fun. Sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. So I've been recapping TV shows for well over a decade. I actually started uh, recapping um, when I was at Rolling Stone. Um My big TV show, uh, to recap when I was there, was uh, Mad Men. And that's really where I cut my teeth. So I've been covering Billions since the fourth season, and it's all been for Vulture, Vulture Vulture.com, which is affiliated with New York Magazine. And it's really been phenomenal. I I love that show. It's interesting. The, doing the coverage now is, is interesting because due to the uh, writers and actors' strike, I can't talk to anybody. I can't interview anybody. And for the record, I completely support the strikes. So, But for me, uh, recapping Billions Now is a bit bittersweet because it is the uh, seventh and final season. So it's time to see where these financial bro- end up and uh who's gonna win who's gonna lose you know who's you know who's playing the game the best Uh (laughs) that's that's what these recaps are all about yeah also i'm curious about your time at rolling
0: stone tell me a little bit about it it sounds like obviously the leadership
1: there or at least your experience with leadership was tough Uh, but tell me a bit about what your your job was like there Absolutely. So um, it was a dream job that turned into a nightmare. So I have plenty of positive things to say about it as well as negative. So I was actually on staff in the copy editing department. That was my job there. But it was also, like I said, where I was able to cut my teeth as a TV journalist. So I had a lot of opportunities to not only recap TV shows, but to interview people and uh, and to write feature articles about the actors. So I had the opportunity to interview a lot of people from Mad Men, uh, The Americans, which was another show that I adored, and Outlander, And although that started toward the end. It was a great opportunity for me to build relationships with actors with creators, with publicists, and demonstrate that I was able to do more than just copy edit. It was incredible in the sense that I met people that most people do not have the opportunity to cross paths with. I can say that I have met Paul McCartney, I have met Taylor Swift, and I love being able to tell people those stories. I love being able to tell people people that I met Taylor Swift pretty early on in her career when I was able to have what what felt like a real genuine exchange with her. So that was was just incredible. And by the time I left, uh, I felt confident enough in my skills that I could pursue my career elsewhere. And that's exactly what I did. And I always like to say I left Rolling Stone nine years ago. I left in 2014. I I don't want to speak of Rolling Stone as it is now because I don't know what it's like now. But when I was there, not only was I emotionally abused by my boss, but it was it was a boys club and it was very hard for women to make any sort of professional inroads there now i'm not saying that that's still the case i have no idea so even though i had to leave because of the emotional abuse i also had to leave for the sake of my career because no matter how hard i worked no one there wanted to see me beyond the copy editing even though i had proved i had proven myself to be an accomplished journalist a skilled journalist And what's interesting is that the second I resigned and I started getting work elsewhere, no one thought of me as a copy editor anymore. Everyone just knew me as Serene Leeds, the TV journalist, the TV writer. So it was sad that I had to leave, but I have no regrets because my career blossomed And I'm grateful for the opportunity. I can tell people that I worked at Rolling Stone and I have stories that will last me a lifetime. And I mean, I I love what my career has become.
0: Well, I will be in big trouble if I don't (laughs) ask you about your Taylor Swift exchange.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it's really interesting because one of the reasons why I was waiting to talk to her was because my boss asked me to get an autograph for his niece. So, um, she came for a luncheon at Rolling Stone circa 2010. And she, I had seen her on the today show, uh, earlier that morning and she had worn this gorgeous, bright blue sequin dress. And when I went up to, um, say hello to her and to ask for the autograph, I just complimented her on her performance and on her dress. And she said, oh, thank you so much for watching. And it was just, I just thought it was so sweet. And I was just, I was just so impressed with her, just because she she was so young. She had to be in her early 20s at that point. What was so funny was I gave her a copy of Rolling Stone. It was the one she it was of her on the cover. And she, of course, like knew exactly what page she was on. So she knew what to sign. And it was really nice. I mean, she just ha- had a very genuine, very sweet demeanor about her. I'm just happy that I have that story to tell. (laughs)
0: That's awesome. How fun. And I will ask you one other entertainment-related question. Sure. Of course. I also was a huge fan of The Americans. So tell us a little bit about that experience. Of
1: course. Oh, yeah. I'm so happy to hear that you're a fellow Americans fan. Like Billions, I think one of the reasons I love The Americans so much is because it was filmed in New York. So it was a lot easier to form a connection with the actors, with the crew, with um, with the showrunners. I am proud to say that I am friends with the show's costume designer. I've had the opportunity to interview most of the main cast multiple times, the showrunners. So that was a show that I pretty much covered from start to finish. And it's, it's something that, I will always treasure. And I have a um, a nesting doll, a matryoshka nesting doll that I received from FX. And uh, but instead of uh, traditional Russian figures, it has Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese on on it. And my daughter plays with it. The show has left quite a legacy. That's a great
0: segue to my (laughs) next question, uh, because I'm going to have to title this episode Motherhood Feels Entertainment if I don't (laughs) switch gears. Uh, Tell me a bit about your journey in becoming a mom.
1: Of course. So I always knew in the back of my mind that I wanted to be a parent, but I spent a good portion of my adult years and my marriage being just really happy with it being me and my husband and my career. But what started happening was I knew that once I hit 35, and I was still working at Rolling Stone at the time, that I couldn't just leave everything to fate anymore. I was going to have to start really thinking and planning. At 35, I stopped birth control, and we started trying, but it was during, uh, those next couple of years that, you know, things got really bad for me at Rolling Stone. And I also knew in the back of my mind that there was no way I was going to be able to be pregnant or have a child given the, um, my work schedule, uh, because I worked for the print magazine. We had very late nights and long hours and I I just didn't see how a pregnancy was going to be possible. And, um, And this is another thing that I noticed for the most part, everyone I knew at Rolling Stone, if they had children, they were men, Hmm. which was a a huge red flag. That was uh, September, 2014. I was uh, 37. Soon afterward, we really started trying in earnest and By spring 2015, we really weren't getting anywhere. And, you know, I mean, I knew that my age was going to be a factor. We could not conceive. I wasn't getting pregnant and having a miscarriage. I just could not get pregnant. And all my OBGYN wanted to do was talk about David Letterman's final show. And I was like, I'm trying to talk to you about how I can't conceive. So the first thing I did was I left that practice. And then uh she had previously given me the name of of a fertility doctor and so we started uh seeing a fertility doctor and he too just chalked all of our issues up to stress which you know wasn't exactly uh that wasn't exactly what I needed to hear but I know we tried clomid um eventually in fall of 2015 uh It was time for uh, to try IUIs. So uh, we did two IUIs and they failed. And then uh, December 2015, we had the third IUI and I was getting scared because I didn't know how we were going to afford IVF. And I knew that, especially now, because I I write a lot uh, for Rescripted.com, which is a fertility and women's health website. I actually just uh, published an article about how IUIs don't have... Uh, very high success rates. So it was a really nerve wracking time. Uh, not to mention I was jacked up with hormones for the IUIs. So so December 2015, we uh, went in for our third IUI and the reproductive endocrinologist who was doing my insemination said, oh, did you know that you had a retroverted cervix? And I was like, no, no one, not even my OBGYN, not the previous REs. No one said a word to me. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So she knew she had to position everything properly and get a straight shot. And it worked. Hmm. So I am so grateful. I am so grateful to that RE. And uh, yeah, so I did officially get pregnant in late December 2015. I was 38. I was so grateful, but I was nervous. You know, I didn't know if I was even going to graduate from the fertility doctor. You know, I I had to keep going back for blood work and ultrasounds for... A few weeks. And then I think sometime in January 2016, I graduated, so to speak, to an OBGYN. I went to a new practice, OBGYN of Mount Sinai in New York, and they were fantastic. Um, My pregnancy, for the most part, was good, but it was tough because they never let me forget that I was of advanced maternal age. <laughs> oh, that that was tough. That was tough. Um but I had I only had one incident sometime in the early spring where I did have a fainting episode and uh it was yeah, it was unexplained. Um I went to the emergency room. I spoke to my uh, OBGYN practice and uh it was just something that kind of came and went. Uh, yeah. So fortunately it was relatively uneventful pregnancy during that time. I was actually working at, uh, the wall street journal. I was covering for my boss who was on maternity leave. And I then had to tell my, <laughs> my, uh, my, my boss and my colleagues, Hey, guess what? Right when this temporary assignment is ending, I'm about to have a baby myself. So so all kind of works out." Uh, So I I worked pretty much all the way through because I wanted to, it was a, it was a fantastic assignment. I was really happy there. It was another opportunity for my entertainment journalism career to thrive. It was when I first started podcasting. Uh, So I was due August 27th, 2016, and I stopped working about a week before, it was discovered that I had low amniotic fluid. I actually had to be induced about four days before my due date.
0: Well, so with the pregnancy, you obviously had to go through a lot. And it's so frustrating when providers aren't able to identify problems correctly. And you have to deal with all of that on top of just the stress of conceiving and everything else in one's life. Yes. But tell me what it was like when you had this fainting spell. That would feel quite unsettling.
1: Um, it was experience. so scary because I had never experienced anything like that before or since. I had actually just gone to manicure and I was walking home and suddenly uh, my eyes just got really fuzzy. And yeah, I was on Queens Boulevard of all places and I slammed my knee on the pavement Fortunately, Mm. I did not fall on my belly. I was so relieved. And um, but yeah, I really hurt my knee. And I called my husband who was like across the street and he raced outside. And fortunately, there was a um, there was actually a hospital right across the street from our um, apartment building. But we learned really quickly why we weren't going to deliver there because (laughs) I had never planned to deliver at that hospital, but (laughs) I was just, because we were wondering, like, why don't we just go there? It's right across the street. And now we know why. That confirmed your decision. Exactly. Exactly. So that was really scary. But at the same time, and I find that this is something that just, I come across a lot in the medical profession because all different kinds of providers see the same thing all the time. So what is really scary to you is like every day for them. So for me, anytime I would talk to any of my OBGYNs about concerns, more often than not, they would be really dismissive. And I find that that's also the case with my daughter when it comes to pediatricians. I'm not saying the pediatricians or the OBGYNs are bad doctors. I just get that they they deal with these things every single day. So something that would make me panic, they're just like, it's nothing. I see it all the time. Right. Yeah. There's a bit of a desensitization there. Yes, exactly. So when I called my OBGYN practice and I spoke to the doctor, they, they weren't terribly concerned. And I mean, fortunately, um, I didn't have a fainting spell after that it was you know like so many other things in my pregnancy and my fertility and everything else was just unexplained. I think that's probably the most frustrating thing you know that I'm sure you come across a lot too whether it was my pregnancy things that happened with my daughter other medical issues it just a lot of the time it's just, it's it's left without any real answers. So, um, I mean, I was just really told, you know, just take care of yourself.
0: <laughs> I, I think when we don't have answers to things and there is a lack of certainty around things, it is quite yeah. anxiety provoking. So I can totally relate to what you're describing. Thank so you yeah. you've then talked about your amniotic fluid and yes. tell us a little bit about what happened there.
1: So what happened with that was because of my advanced maternal age, towards the end of the pregnancy, I had to come in weekly for monitoring. And so this was, it was like a week before my due date. And I came in for monitoring and they're like, hmm, the amniotic fluid looks a little wonky. We're not quite sure. They said, go home, pack your bag and then come back on Monday and we're going to check you again. So for of course, the stress started that weekend because I'm like, oh my God, I thought I had another week. I tried to rest as much as I could that weekend. I packed my bag, got it ready. And then, yes, the morning of Monday, August 22nd, my husband and I went back to the OBGYN's office and they, they checked me again. And they're like, yeah the uh, amniotic fluid is too low. So, and I'll just never forget the doctor because this is something they do every day. You know, she's just like, okay, we're going to induce you, you know, just like, just like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, um, okay. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was not ready. I was not ready. I mean, this is something that just falls out of the doctor's mouth. Like it's nothing for me. I was, Definitely not ready. So that was scary. That was that was anxiety inducing because she's like, all right, this is what's gonna happen. You're gonna go home, rest, get ready, eat dinner, and then you're gonna go to Mount Sinai. Mount, <clears throat> excuse me, Mount Sinai at midnight. That's yeah, that's how they did it. I was like, okay. And I was, I was like catatonic. I we went home. I made my husband call my parents. I was like, I can't tell anyone. I'm just I have to try to get my wrap my mind around this and I I immediately went to my comfort food which is I went to binge watch Mad Men. <laughs> <laughs> Not what one would call a relaxing TV show but since I knew the show inside and out I was like I'm just going to go watch Mad Men for several hours. So then at around I don't know a, that night, we called an Uber. I always like to mention this detail. Our Uber was a Jaguar. So I got to go give birth to my child in a Jaguar. Wow, which is, which is pretty cool. You normally don't see that. Uh yes, yeah, so we yeah, so we arrived at Mount Sinai at the designated time of midnight. I was induced. The hardest part was cuz they had a they had to break my water. I knew I wanted an epidural, but I needed it almost right away because to get that balloon in there, that mm-hmm. was actually the most painful part. There's always people who like to say oh my God, there's nothing worse than childbirth. And I always say, yeah, there is. And it's called a kidney stone. I've had kidney stones. So between the epidural and having had a kidney stone a few years before, um, delivering um, vaginally was not that bad. Wow. Well, I'm thinking
0: about all the details there and the shock of learning that you're going to be induced. But also one of the cringe moments for me is learning you have to go to the hospital at midnight and starting the sleep deprivation already.
1: Yes, that that I know wasn't so much for me, but it was for like the doctor schedule. Mm -hmm. So eventually they got everything going. I had to have a second epidural. I actually, I did have a birth doula, but the reason why well, she was actually a friend of ours who was in training. And so she needed uh, to attend births to get her certification. And what I really liked about her was she was a birth doula who was supportive of women who wanted an epidural like me. So I really um wanted her there for the emotional support because yes, my husband was there, but mm, yeah, I, I wanted someone else. um. So she was great but she didn't come until the following morning because she knew that it was going to take a good 12 hours because I was being induced. So she arrived sometime that morning. I was really grateful that she was there. The one thing I am grateful for is that I I ended up not having a terribly long labor. So yeah, I arrived at the hospital at midnight and my daughter was born the following day at 12:14 p.m. My daughter Diana, really showed who she was the moment she was born. So the doctor who delivered her, so his back was turned. He hadn't even gotten his gloves on yet. And I felt something moving, like wriggling. And he's like, Serene, stop pushing. I said, I am not pushing. Diana was already dancing her way out of my womb. And I remember him saying like, I-, I didn't even get my gloves on yet. And he was accusing me of of like pushing her out. And I was like, oh no, that is not me. That is my independent daughter who is doing what she wants because she is ready to come greet the world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'd imagine that some of those same characteristics are happening
1: now. Oh, yes, indeed. Oh, yes, indeed. There's a reason why we named her Diana. Um, Wonder Woman is a really important figure to me. So I wanted to give her the name Diana. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: It's well, a little bit about those early postpartum days once you're getting home with Diana.
1: Yeah, um, they were not easy um they were not easy at all i did not adjust well to motherhood it was it was very hard it was a real shock to the system because it doesn't matter how many you know classes you take or how many books you read i um it was very hard so beforehand we had hired a postpartum doula I didn't do my due diligence on this uh, postpartum doula, and uh, I've I've written articles about this. You know, I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know what kind of questions to ask when I interviewed this person, and I also didn't know that you have to book that postpartum doula, especially in the New York area way in advance. I was completely clueless to that. So I wound up hiring a postpartum doula that was completely the wrong fit. Considering how fragile I was those first few days, she just wound up making everything worse. Like I said, I I learned a lot about got to do your due diligence because I know there are incredible postpartum doulas out there. And I unfortunately had a terrible experience. So I remember coming from New York City. I was in Florida when I had
0: my first daughter and asking the hospital staff, do you have recommendations for postpartum baby nurses? And they looked at me like I was crazy and like, are you afraid to go home with the baby? No, no. I just, where's the support? So I'm hopeful that it will become a bit more normalized and that people can advocate for what they need with it all.
1: Yeah. It's it's still really so disappointing to know that the kinds of support that are out there are not more widely known. Like like I said, the, those first uh, several weeks and months were were difficult. Also because um Diana had colic, and this was a new issue for me. Uh, and for my mom, none of, none of, uh, none of us, I have two siblings, none of us had colics. So this, this was all new to her, uh, it was new to me. And of course the pediatrician didn't offer much in the way of support. So those first few months were very, 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 very difficult, uh, difficult. And, uh, they inspired, uh, another article that I wrote for veller.com because there was a prominent uh, media figure who gave birth, I don't know, maybe like six months after I did. And she wrote this article for, I think it was Refinery29, where basically the first 30 days of motherhood for her were just like something out of a fairy tale. She breastfed easily. I mean, it was so peaceful and so beautiful. And so by this point, I think Diana was like somewhere between eight to 10 months old. And I immediately pitched um, this editor that I knew at caveller.com. I said, please, you've got to let me write a parody of this because this is this is not reality. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I'll I'll send it to you. You know, I'd love to leave that in the show notes because it's because it's fun. Like anybody who has struggled those first uh, few months as a mother, I had to put that all in this article and I and I love the um title that my editor came up with it was some it was something like you know those first few months of uh, motherhood are not like Instagram worthy as as many mothers will have you think because I was like, oh no, that was really my outlet you know that kind of writing. yeah, great idea on your part you. and
0: I would love to take a look at it. Tell me a little bit about any hindsight moments. Um, You've talked about a few, but as you you are now a seasoned mom, uh, looking (laughs) back, what would you say
1: are some hindsight moments? I have had to learn how to ask for help because I am like my daughter. I am very independent. I am very independent minded. The last thing I have ever wanted to do with anyone is ask for help. I've always believed in figuring things out on my own whether it was when Diana was a newborn, or especially now with setting up her supports um, for her ADHD, you've got to ask for help and not be shy or embarrassed about it, as hard as that may be. I had that experience actually just a couple of weeks ago. We hit basically a version of rock bottom with Diana and her ADHD. And I realized therapist waiting lists or waiting until maybe she was a little bit older to consider medication just were not options anymore. And I was able to say out loud to multiple people, I need help. I need more names of therapists. I immediately got on an emergency telehealth call with Uh, Diana's developmental pediatrician, and we started uh, moving up the medication discussion. And it's something, it's help that she needs and, and we as her parents need. And I opened up about it on Instagram, and I'm still tearing up thinking about it now. The amount of support that I received blew my mind because it's something that I just really wasn't used to. I find that support is so necessary. So I've found support with friends with neurodivergent kids. One even uh pointed me toward a whole community of moms with neurodivergent kids which which I never would have found if I hadn't just finally opened up and said I'm struggling, I need help. My mom took it upon herself to ask someone she knew to try to get me uh more therapist options, but that was still just such a stressful process. I finally was able to say again, I need help, and I think that that makes all the difference. And it's something I'm still learning, but um it's it's the same thing from when we first came home with Diana and that first night where she wouldn't sleep and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this because um I know that it was dangerous but she would she would not sleep in her bed and so it was just me holding her on the couch. It was the only time I did that. <laughs> um and you know my mom called that ne- that next morning and I was in pain, I was groggy, I was frightened and I I was like she was like do you do you need help and I and I croaked yes. Mm -hmm. please. And, and that's still the hardest thing for me to do to say, yes, I need help. Well, it sounds like
0: putting yourself out there, verbalizing and getting more comfortable. with Mm -hmm. saying yes and asking for support has been really valuable. So I'm so glad that you guys are on a good pathway for your daughter and family. I'm also so glad that we had a chance to talk and meet. I feel like we could uh, spend (laughs) another hour together with all of your cool (laughs) stories and interesting moments. Thank you so, so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I, really relish any opportunity to talk about my motherhood experience because it's so important. I love what you're doing. I think it is so important that other mothers, other parents listen to other people's stories. I mean, it's the same thing that I'm trying to do with my podcast. I think storytelling, which is um, a linchpin of my career, is so beneficial to people. Well, thanks for being here, Serene. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.